Hello and welcome to You're On Mute, the On Mute Series 2, a multi-award nominated podcast brought to you by BBI. I'm your host, Lord Michael Hastings, and sharing some good news, I'm pleased to announce we now have a charity, the Black British Initiative. Over the next 25 weeks, myself and Eunice Olumidi and my fellow presenters will be interviewing an incredible lineup of leaders, icons, and change makers. Lifting the mute button, we learn about their life's journey, how they got their big break, and ascertain how they balance the importance of commercial performance versus societal impact. Now, the killing of George Floyd, Chris Caber, and similar instances has highlighted how racial disparity has disproportionately affected the globe's black communities. One of the greatest challenges facing black entrepreneurs is a lack of access to funding capital, limited aspirations, stunting growth, slowing innovation, and preventing the deep reservoirs of black entrepreneurial talent from being realized, counterproductive, of course, for society at large. And as we all know, with great power comes huge responsibility. So this series looks at how those in positions of influence can use their status as a force for good, helping to level the playing field to enable a full contribution from every sector of society. Our time together is broken into three sections, each one punctuated by the guests' favorite piece of music, signaling different stages of their life. And joining me today, I'm thrilled to say, is the Right Honorable Baroness Tina Stahl of Beeston, Chair of the Charity Commission from February 2018 to February 2021. And we'll be discussing the intersection between the role of the Charity Commission, charities, and how to aid systematically disadvantaged Black entrepreneurs. Welcome, Tina. Hi, Michael. Hello, it's good to see you. Thank you so oh. much for your kindness in doing this with us. Yeah, thank you for asking me. I feel very privileged. So your very first track of music is one we all love, Whitney Houston, I Want to Dance with Somebody. Why? Yeah. You suggested I pick something that reminded me of my sort of teenage years, and there were many tracks that I could have chosen, but I went for this one for a couple of reasons. First, I uh, love to dance, and certainly in that part of my life I was a big dancer I used to go out quite a lot uh, dancing and my friends who knew me at that time would I'm sure testify to um, uh, not just my enthusiasm but actually I think I was quite you know I was quite a mover really back then um, and also as well um, the reason I picked this track as a bit of a um, an anthem to that part of my life was when I moved to London when I was 18 I bought a, a cassette player because I couldn't bring my record player down to London. And uh, one of the very few cassettes that I had was Whitney Houston's first album. And I used to play this an awful lot at the time. So, cause I didn't have that many cassettes to play. So yes. uh, it just feel a bit of a soundtrack to, to that part of, part of my adult life. Well, everything about Whitney Houston has such melody and memories yeah, no, for all of us, all of us. So you grew up in the north of England, like as I did, but I was um, I was on the the west side. You were near River Trent, small town. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I suppose Londoners might consider uh, Nottingham in the north, but obviously it's in the East Midlands. But um, yeah, so I was born and brought up in uh, Beeston, just outside of Nottingham. You know, had a very happy childhood, uh, very uh, loving and supportive, strong family. And um, uh, I mean, I came to London, as I said already, when I was 18, but uh, not because I was wanting to leave Beeston or Nottingham particularly. It was not an intention that I was ending up in London, but um, that's where I'm from originally anyway, yeah. 
you came from what might be classically called a traditional Labour family. Um, how, I don't know whether you call it a traditional Labour family. Um, my parents were, uh, I mean, we weren't a political family at all. Um, in, you know, politics was not really discussed in, in our house. But I know that my parents voted conservative, certainly from the point at which uh, Mrs. Thatcher became uh, leader of the Conservative Party. I think my mum was probably a um, first a, a follower of Thatcher before uh, my dad, but um, they were both um, sort of big uh, Thatcherite type uh, Tories. But uh, as it happens, um, my grandfather, my dad's dad, uh, was a... Um, local councillor in Beeston, he died before I was born, but he was he was a Labour councillor. And um, so uh, although I never met him, uh, he was quite a political uh, figure um, and quite a you know, well known person uh, in Beeston uh, as well. And and I think my my mum's father, who died when she was you know only about seven anyway, but he was quite a big uh, figure in the local Labour cooperative party um, and that was up in something Ashfield uh, in in the north of the county so in that re in that respect yes um, but um, my dad uh, was a self-employed painter and decorator my mum worked at the local factory which is the end of our street and uh, you know big employer and the and the part of Beeston that I grew up in I mean it's sort of you know Beeston or Broxtow as a constituency sort of you know has has moved around in terms of whether you know it's been a Labour or a Conservative constituency but certainly Beeston Rylands where I grew up was an area which was quite a traditional type of working class area because there was a factory which very much dominated uh, the place the Rylands you had to cross the railway uh, line in order to to enter it and the River Trent actually borders it at the other end so it's quite a contained place and therefore a very strong community and when we were you know when my brother and I were growing up um, you know we felt very much it was a it was it was a very well, just as I said, you know, a very sort of strong community. Everybody knew everybody. Most families had somebody working in the factory. There was a big social club attached to the factory where, you know, we would all sort of, um, you know, go for entertainment. So, so in that respect, it was the sort of environment that, you know, people might often sort of picture or imagine of one of those places which was thriving and uh, populated by lots of, you know, characters and, and uh, you know, interesting sort of people and, you know, sort of corner shops, all that sort of thing, but was then, you know, very much uh, decimated when, you know, the factory started to close down and, and, and people were made redundant. So, um, so in that respect, yeah. What a wonderful, beautiful picture of a vibrant upbringing. Wonderful. And you went on, well, through... Would you say an average education system towards better achievements? What was it like for you? School in the area, college? 
Um, well, um, so, I mean, I, when I was at that point uh, between uh, junior school and senior school, the 11 plus was um, sort of petering out. So my brother took the 11 plus, but I didn't take the 11 plus. The secondary modern schools um, were actually, for both the boys and the girls, had a good reputation. There were, there were decent schools and there was a grammar. And then when things all went comprehensive, I went to chill comprehensive, as it was known then. And um it didn't certainly at that time have a very good reputation. I mean, it was a very modern school, great facilities. You know, it was it wasn't great. Let's put it that way. And uh, I mean, I worked hard at school. I wasn't a particularly bookish sort of child, but I was quite. You know, I wasn't a rebel. You know, I was. I would do what I needed to do and and you know work hard. But I wasn't somebody who was particularly. Um, inspired by sort of you know learning I was somebody who was ambitious to get to work and um you know and I wanted to get a job and have a career where you know I could you know earn good money and um and that sort of thing so that was that was my sort of motivation and what was your first job well my very first job as a Saturday girl was in a cake shop in Nottingham and um uh, birds cake shop and, um, and I loved that job actually I was 14 when I started that job and I got it through knocking on doors asking if anybody wanted a, a Saturday girl and and I took it really seriously actually that job and worked really hard and the sort of um uh you know attitudes that I I brought to um, to being sort of the best I could be, you know, as a Saturday girl in that cake shop, I sort of always sort of refer to as the same kind of, um, you know, attitude that has um, seen me through all of my career, really. And, and I, you know, and these are, you know, these are things that I, I you know, I, I learned and adopted, you know, from observing my mom and dad, you know, in, in terms of, you know, the way in which, you know, they worked and the way they, um, raised us as children and the way they were with each other so um, but yeah I loved that job and um, did that till I was 16 and then I, I did another Saturday job but I I started college when I was out of school at 16 and started uh, at the local college Broxtow College as it was called then and I, I, I got on a course which was a very prestigious course it was a two-year secretarial course which um, I was the only girl from my school to be successful in getting on this course and you needed five O-levels to get on it which is you know sort of a, a mark of how serious it was and um, and it was, uh, you know, working to what you obviously you know, learned skills, shorthand typing, that sort of thing. But also um, the certificate overall was to get the London Chamber of Commerce and Industries private secretary certificate. And and you did two A-levels as well at the same time. So it was, you know, it was it was a serious sort of thing. So I I was doing my Saturday job, you know, alongside of that. Um, but I, you know, I decided that you know, my, you know, my aim, my ambition was to be, um, you know, a top flight secretary and, uh, and, you know, to be sort of, you know, working for somebody, you know, big, successful boss of a business uh, somewhere. And, and one of the reasons why I wanted to be a secretary was because, you know, my mum, you know, had worked, as I say, in the local factory and she'd always worked on the shop floor. And, um, you know, she was, she was keen for me to, you know, to, 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 to be able to, have an office job, which she always considered, you know, that much more. The people who did office jobs, she felt, were treated better than people mm. who worked uh, in the factory. So that was what she sort of aspired for me. Well, you did take on the title of secretary later, which we'll come on to further. But 
as you go into life, you, you then leap to a very, very big global company. Well, I went to the civil service as a way of illustrating the sort of image I had in my head of what I was uh, aiming for was uh, at, at sort of in the in the 80s, if you remember, Sir John Harvey Jones, who yes. was the boss of ICI, was very much on the television. And, uh, you know, he was the only sort of business person, really, sort of, you know, most of us were even aware of. And, and so for me, being an ambitious uh, young girl wanting to be secretary to somebody big and powerful, the sort of person I thought that would be would be somebody like Sir John Harvey Jones. So that was that was what I had in my mind. But um, um, but no, what happened was I was I was at college. We had a career talk from uh, somebody uh, come, came to the college who um Claim to be recruiting, looking to recruit girls to join the foreign office. I later learned some years <laughs> later that she was actually recruiting for MI6. But um, but anyway, um, I don't I, I had had at another point for unknown reasons, I had wanted to join the Royal Air Force. And um, that's partly because I'd been in the girls' brigade and I liked drill. And I sort of thought that, you know, I'd quite like to be with the military. And uh, you can see there's a very disciplined person I am. And um, anyway, I, for whatever reason, I sort of wasn't, didn't like the sound of the Foreign Office, but I asked her about the Ministry of Defence, uh, which I had heard of. And uh, she got me some, she, I don't know, she left me with some information. But what, what I learned was, and what she was basically saying about the Foreign Office too, was that they were recruiting uh, girls into secretarial positions on the basis of their qualifications without experience. Now, for an ambitious 18-year-old, this sounded amazing. Because as we all know, when you're at school or you're at college, and you, you know, look, looking and starting to prepare to go to work, everybody always says, but you know, what you need experience, you know, so there's always that sort of, you know, how do you get experience if you can't get a job? So that was, that was the appeal of this prospect. So I applied and uh, applied to the Ministry of Defence. And uh, anyway, once I've got my exam results, they called me to London for an interview. And it wasn't until I was sat in front of the interview panel that I discovered that this job, if I was successful, would mean having to leave home and come to living London. I had no idea. I don't know where I thought this job was going to be, but I didn't think it was going to be in London. And, and they said to me, well... Um, you know, do you know anybody? And I said, no. And they said, do you know your way around? And I said, I've only been to London a couple of times before. And I said, well, I found my way here, didn't I? And um, anyway, I got offered a job at the civil service. And that's how I came to London. And having started at the civil service, that was going to take you on into so many other exciting roles, including internationally. Yes, so I did I did three years in the MOD in London, working for the RAF, as it happens, and uh, I was um, PA to uh, an Air Commodore, which was fantastic, and he and the rest of the RAF officers were brilliant in their support of me and encouragement of me, and, and because, you know, these kind of, you know, attitudes and determination that I'd had on display sort of from the age of 14 at my first Saturday job were very evident then too, they were very responsive to that and they really helped me um sort of you know gain confidence and look for new opportunities and so I um applied to go um to uh, on the overseas list and was posted to the British Embassy in Washington 
And um, again, I was there, I was the secretary, um, I was working in the defence section. Um, and what we did then was support British defence businesses sell equipment to the American government. That was what we were trying to do, whether it was Rolls-Royce, BAE or whoever. But that was where, when I was in Washington, I went there when I was 21. It was a three-year posting. That was where I first, I think, got uh, gained an interest in politics, not in a party political way, but, you know, just because in Washington, you know, it's the only business in town, effectively. And, and if you don't, sort of, if you're not interested in it, then, you know, you might as well sort of go home. And, uh, and this was, uh, you know, I, I, I got, I got the, I got caught up in the sort of, you know, the drama of it. I found it fascinating. I found the, um, you know, the way you sort of, politics works was something which you know really intrigued me but yeah so I did three years in Washington and um, it was at the time it was at the late 80s it was when um, Ronald Reagan was coming to the end of his mm. term the mm. first uh, George Bush uh, uh, was elected uh, and there was a lot going on in the world um, this was at the time when uh, the Berlin Wall came down Nelson Mandela was released the first Iraq war started whilst I was there so it was a, it was a very you know the sort of whole sort of um you know sort of iron curtain sort of you know it, it was a big time sort of internationally you know and and I learned a lot and I suppose during my time in America um you know my horizons were lifted again at that point because you know mixing with you know living in an environment where you know people were respected for what they did and what they could do and where they came from was not really an issue um was very you know sort of fascinating to me and um and I think also observing people in you know on the hill or in the pentagon doing similar jobs to me were taken much more seriously than I think we sort of in the UK tended to treat people who were doing those kind of supporting type roles was again sort of you know a real it was quite an inspiration and and it meant that you know as I gained um, responsibility and experience as a secretary I too started to feel even more emboldened I guess by sort of you know the um, importance you know of, of of my contribution to the you know success of the department or the organization that I was a part of so you know and I I, I was looking then to well what more could I do you know actually I, I I don't you know I'm better I can be better and do better you know more you know bigger things than just be just be a secretary so it's a very fast um, pace isn't it in, in for in young years yeah I mean um but I think it, you know, I I think it comes from, you know, this is why I always credit my mom and dad with so much of what I have achieved because most of what I have, you know, relied on and you know has seen me through and has propelled me from different places and uh, you know and onto different things has been sort of you know the, the that sort of attitude and self belief. And commitment to excellence, you know, and being, you know, excellent in whatever it is that, you know, you are tasked with doing at any one time is, is the most, you know, important feature of, uh, you know, of, 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 you know, of, of how I've got on. And I think the other thing as well, Michael, is that, you know, in all this time and, and indeed, you know, in, in the various jobs that I did since as I gained confidence and realized I was capable of doing more, then I would look for 
something else that would challenge me or stretch me. But what I was never trying to do was to get to a particular place. There wasn't an idea in my mind, apart from my original sort of, you know, PAs, just John Harvey Jones type image, you know, there wasn't there wasn't kind of like, you know, well, I'm going to be, you know, the chief executive of something, or I'm going to be, you know, this, that, the other. I mean, it wasn't that it was, it was, it was a gradual self-confidence in uh, my ability gained from, you know, my own evidence that I was creating for myself, you know, of, of, of being able to do things and I and I think that kind of learning and development is very underrated and misunderstood and and what you know I argue a lot these days is that you know there are a lot of people out there who you know are not uh, right for the kind of study you know university type sort of pathway to success they're more like me you know as in somebody who is capable and able and will learn but but but, you know, has to get out there and practically learn um, in order to sort of, you know, really develop. And we need more people of that kind to have the opportunity to keep climbing up the ladder to, you know, the very top rungs, because that's where we are sort of lacking quite a lot of diversity, because, you know, there's actually sort of, you know, at the top of any sort of organisation, you know, even though, you know, they may still not be as diverse as they need to be in a range of different characteristics, you know, or sort of ethnically or whatever, and that needs to improve. It's not going to improve the real um, uh, understanding of big business, government or politics of the masses of the people that they're there to serve, unless they've got people at the top who have also um, progressed in that sort of way, because that will help them to see the world in a different place. Let's move on to your second track of music from U2. Still haven't found what I'm looking for. Wow. Yeah. Well, I picked this. I mean, this is something which, um, I mean, people who know me might sort of think, well, that's an odd one for for her to choose because it's not, I'm not a big U2 um, type fan, but I chose it because whilst I was in the States, I think, you know, particularly at that time, the sort of late 80s, you know, big sort of rock bands were sort of, you know, quite, you know, Bon Jovi, you know, John Bon Jovi, you know, that sort of, you know what I mean? It was quite, uh, that was, uh, you know, quite the fashion. And um, and I like this track. Um, I like, I'm sort of, as I say, not a big YouTube fan, but I like some of their individual sort of music. Uh, but also the, the video of this um, uh, track is set in Las Vegas. And um, and I love Las Vegas. I first went to Vegas when I was living in the States and I've been back many, many times since. And um, and I think also the title of the track sort of was, you know, is quite a, I think really kind of captures in a way what life was like for me when I was in my sort of, you know, uh, sort of 30, you know, as I was going into my 30s, really, and I'd sort of got to another another crossroads in my um, career journey. So that was why I chose this one. Lovely. Well, it's strong. So you go on in politics to work at number 10 and you're working, if I have it correctly, you're working for the very wonderful Lord Gus O'Donnell, who was part of John Major's government and your PA to him. Mm-hmm. What was that like? Well, it was uh, pretty intense. Uh, I mean, I so I got there sort of just after John Major had become prime minister. So this was in 1991. And um 
I, uh, I mean, the hours were long. I mean, you know, we used to, I had to, used to, I had to be in the office before 7.30 in the morning. I was there till sort of, you know, usually about nine o'clock at night. And again, when I first went there, I didn't really know much about the media. Um, and so that was quite an education, um, but it was, it was very busy and it was fascinating to be, you know, at the heart of what was going on in the world. I, I suppose I got sort of, you know, I got hit by another bug there, which was the sort of adrenaline of, you know, of, of uh, politics and being mm -hmm. sort of, you know, at, at the heart of everything. But it was, um, yeah, I mean, it was a very busy, intense, um, crazy sort of place uh, to be where you never had a moment's, um, you know, sort of peace, really, as you would expect, um, but fascinating. And, and there again, although I was recruited as a PA still, so that was the, still the kind of um, grade I was in the civil service, um, uh, you know, I brought with me to that job you know the same sort of you know commitment to doing sort of you know it very well but also looking for ways in which I could make the press office run better how I could make the way in which we dealt with the journalists in the lobby more efficient for the journalists so that that was sort of you know better ultimately for number 10. I then took on responsibility or I started going on the overseas trips and soon took on responsibility for all the logistics of the traveling press party so I would be in charge of um you know leading the lobby and leading sort of you know the various uh pulled crews to different sort of photo opportunities or sort of doorstep opportunities um and making sure that they had places to file their stories from on time so I became sort of a quite a big you know, in that part of the house, I became a very big, uh, important figure, even though I was, you know, in sort of civil service grade terms, quite, um, you know, quite, quite a junior rank. And I did that job for five years, you know, Gus moved on, another person that you'll probably have heard of, Christopher Mayer replaced him, you know, so there was all these people that, you know, still um, are, um, uh, you know, figures that um, we're familiar with or, you know, sort of, uh, now. And um, But I did it for five years and eventually I decided it was time to move on, which uh, was in 1996, so a year before the election. Um, and, um, and that was when I left the civil service as well. And I, and I think, you know, I had 10 years in the civil service. You know, I had a good career. I had some you know, as you've just heard, fantastic jobs. I worked with brilliant people. They were very, very generous with sharing their knowledge and um, uh, and supporting me during that time. But, but at the same time, um, it was disappointing that, um, you know, the civil service didn't look at someone like me and think, here's somebody, you know, with great potential. Um, you know, we should, you know, make sure that they, you know, they don't, um, uh, um, get, you know, sort of stuck on, you know, in sort of one place and, you know, we want to move them into a different sort of role where they can, you know, there was none of that. And I think that's partly, Michael, because, you know, normally if you get a job like the one I had at number 10, when you are, you know, a, a secretary, you know, these are plum jobs. These are fantastic jobs. 
And most people who get them hang on to them for as long as they possibly can, because, you know, certainly, you know, one of the things I thought then and, you know, for a good few years afterwards was that I probably wasn't going to get a better job ever again. You're seeing the prime minister, you're traveling around the world, you know, you're earning, um, you know, overtime money, which means that you're sort of, you know, you're on a decent uh, pay, all of that sort of thing. Um, but for me, I knew I was capable of more. And, um, and I think that, you know, I couldn't and didn't want to spend the rest of my life just doing the same thing. Um, and, uh, you know, and I think when I left and I left the civil service, uh, I was very, very um, uh, privileged to receive an MBE at the point that I left, which was, you know, quite an unusual thing to happen, you know, for somebody who was I was only 29 then. I hadn't actually reached 30. Um, but, you know, I think most people assumed I would be, <laughs> I'd be gone, you know what I mean? And, you know, go off, I don't know, get married, you know, do whatever um, people do at that time uh, of their life. When I left, I, my first job after that was actually to work for David Frost at his independent production company. Um, but for various reasons, that um, didn't last uh, very long. And then after that, um, I found myself in a situation where I was having to temp. So I was having to go to um, temporary agencies and get temp work. And, you know, and I was doing that on and off for, um, you know, best part of two years. And it was quite, it was quite, um, uh, you know, it, it almost felt sort of at that point, I mean, I, I don't know why I didn't pack up and go home really. I mean, I'd bought, I'd bought my own flat by that time. So I had a mortgage, you know, I couldn't, um, you know, I, I, I couldn't sort of not work because I've got to be able to sort of, you know, keep paying, keep paying my mortgage and what have you. And I kept going, but I didn't really know what was going to happen. And I didn't, I hadn't defined what I was. I knew I was no longer a secretary, but I didn't know what, you know, what, what it was um, that I should be um, trying to do by way of a job or how to define myself. Anyway, I got rescued um, at that point when um, uh, I was approached to go and work uh, for William Hague, who by then, this was um, uh, around the start of 1998. He'd been leader of the opposition, leader of the Conservative Party by this time for about six months. And um, Sebastian Coe had just become his chief of staff and um, uh, and Seb uh, asked me if I would be his deputy, as in sort of you know deputy chief of staff, and um, and run you know William's office, and that's what I did. And and that was you know I never thought I would go back into working politics, and this was a different kind of politics. This was you know proper politics as opposed to civil service type politics. Um, but that's how I went back into politics at that point. William lost his election bid and that had a big impact on you yeah I mean so I worked for him for four years um and uh you know in opposition at that time the conservative party was clearly sort of you know very um challenged by the you know massive defeat in 97 um, you know, being leader of the party in that period, 97 to 2001, was the real sort of graveyard shift. I mean, it really, really mm-hmm. was. It, it was a great time, though, in other ways, because being a tight team and working again with some brilliant people, William, Seb, um, George Osborne was also, um, the, you know, one of William's aides at that time. You know, there was 
uh, Danny Finkelstein. I mean, you know, there was quite a sort of, you know, you know, group of people. So because it was small, um, you know, again, you know, I learned an awful lot and gained an awful lot from that time. But when the election was lost in 2001 and, uh, you know, and I found myself out of work again, and, you know, and I was, uh, you know, William uh, and Seb and everybody, you know, were, you know, clearly sort of, you know, trying to sort of help me find a new job. But, you know, in the end, you know, you're on your own, you know, you, you that's what you do. But I, um, I saw uh, a job advertised in The Guardian, um, which was at the BBC, and, uh, and it was, it was the, you will remember this, Michael, it was the Deputy Secretary um, to the corporation, not a role that exists these days, but, um, and, uh, and I, I forget precisely what the ad said, but it, it described the role as sort of, you know, something which is, you know, at the heart of the sort of, you know, seat of power in the BBC, and you got to sort of manage the business of the chairman and the director general, you know, the board of governors and, and, the, and the executive committee. And, and, um, and I just thought, oh, this sounds like, you know, this sounds like the job for me, you know, and, um, uh, so, um, you know, I applied for it and the thing which, um, I was, you know, when I got the job spec, of course, I didn't know anything about BBC grades really. Um, but it was, it was, it was classified as an SM2. Again, you will know what this means. This is senior manager two. And, and that's really senior in the BBC, you know, it's a proper senior manager grade. And so for me, having spent sort of the last, I don't know, 15 years of my working life um, in jobs where, you know, I was doing far more than, you know, I was, uh, um, you know, classified as and paid for um, to actually apply for and get a job, which, you know, was compatible with, with, you know, what I was actually going to be doing and to be recognized as such and everything. It was, was such a breakthrough. I can't tell you. Mm. Um, but anyway, um, that's how I ended up at the BBC. And, and I didn't, I didn't think, uh, well, I, when I got there, I wasn't quite sure how long I'd last, but, um, but anyway, I did nine years at the BBC and I went on to do other jobs as well in the BBC. It's interesting how this title secretary has gone all the way through your life, but it has different meanings yes, doesn't it? Yes that's true. Yes. <laughs> so, so fascinating things happened in politics, fascinating things happened in the BBC, the Hutton inquiry, the changes in leadership. Of course I was at the BBC at the time as well, we both remember the drama of those of those days. How do you look back on the on the let's be honest the men that you worked for across politics and media and so on, is there a lesson you've pulled away from all of that? I do feel very fortunate that I've worked for and with some brilliant, fascinating uh, people. They are mostly men, that's true. Um, and, uh, you know, I sort of, they're all, they are very different, um, you know, and, and, and I sort of, um, you know, I mean, I think, how can I, how can I sort of, it's hard to sort of pull out one sort of lesson. I mean, they're, they're, they're different lessons from, from different ones. I mean, I, you know, so to just run through them. So, you know, I've worked for John Major, William Hague, as you've already heard. Uh, I also at the BBC, I mean, I worked for Michael Grade, there was Greg Dyke, and there was, you know, also other chairman, um, Gavin uh, Davies. When I look at sort of people like, um, you know, Michael Grade or um, uh, David Frost, 
you know, they are, you know, what, what I, what fascinated me about them was, you know, their, their genuine interest in people. And, um, and that sort of, you know, was something which, you know, really did um, shine through in, in the way in which they, you know, approached, you know, their responsibilities. And then you sort of see other people who, you know, are, you know, at different stages, you know, I would see sort of what it means to believe in yourself and how, you know, if you are a leader, and don't have that self-belief, but are nonetheless competent, competent, you're never going to be as good as somebody who, you know, has actually got that, um, you know, that, that, that self-belief to actually manage the responsibilities that come with some of these sort of big jobs. So I learned a lot, but I also, I mean, in the period when I was temping and was going sort of, you know, around lots of different people, you know, who thought they were really sort of, you know, big and important, but, you know, probably weren't sort of, you know, sort of as effective as they would aspire to be. That's also when I started to realize, you know, how, how much more, you know, how, how my own abilities, you know, whilst they may not have been codified in, in a way that others would be in terms of, you know, their qualifications or credentials, um, were, you know, a good match for some of these people, really. Let's move on to your third and final piece of music. The wonderful performer Justin Timberlake can't stop the feeling. Yeah. That's another great dance track there. Do you know this one, Michael? I don't know this one. How does it make you feel? Oh, it makes me happy. It's such a, um, it's a real, it's a real feel good um, track, I think. And um, and whenever I hear it, it makes me um, smile. It's quite a good dancey um, tune as well. Um, but again, I also like the video with this song um, because um, I think I mean I don't know what the song is about really. I mean I think it's just a sort of you know feel good sort of dancey thing. But the but the but the the video is made up of. Um, lots of different people dancing in their work settings. And um, so there's sort of, you know, there's a, there's a mechanic, there's a, a supermarket um, uh, assistant, there's a laundrette uh, assistant, there's a, and they're all doing very ordinary sort of type jobs. And, and then um, there's a, a sort of, you know, bit where they all then sort of, you know, are dancing in sync with uh, Justin Timberlake. And then at the end, they all get a sort of, you know, a roll call and, and, just using their first names they're all done in first uh, you know in alphabetical order and Justin Timberlake is in there as sort of J after you know sort of before K and one of and it's just um it's just uh I love it because I love the way that it is promoting um you know people who are just doing ordinary jobs but are united in their you know, the sort of spontaneity and happiness and, and everything else, really. It's sort of, it's just a way of sort of, it, it, it promotes so many things in my mind anyway. So that's why I chose. Well, but I had, had others a... that I could have chosen, but. Um... But that one is, I, I'm now going to watch it. I'm going to watch yeah. it. Oh, you must, yeah. So <laughs> you left the BBC and you became a life peer, a baroness. Um, and while you're thinking about your future, you have a surprise phone call from David Cameron. Yeah, that's right. Well, I, so I left the BBC, I'd, I'd probably got as far as I was going to go. I mean, by, by um, the end of my time there, I'd become head of corporate affairs. 
and I, you know, it's like everything, you know, you get to a point where you think, well, you know, what do I want to do now? And, and I thought quite deeply after the sort of, you know, financial crash in 2008 and also the uh, MPs expenses. And, um, and I'd been quite uh, concerned by the way that people had felt so let down by, um, you know, sort of, um, you know, people in positions of authority, uh, you know, whether it was just the way in which, you know, the the whole economy had um, uh, shot or the way in which they'd seen exposed sort of people in positions of uh, leadership uh, letting them down. And, and I had, I toyed at first with the idea of, um, well, I did try, um, to become an MP, but that didn't um, transpire. But I think that is what probably um, triggered a thought in David Cameron's uh, mind that you know I might be somebody who would be um, a suitable person to go into the House of Lords. So I had already, as I say, decided to leave the BBC. I was working out my notice period, and and in fact, actually, I think by the time David Cameron rang me, I had left. I had I'd left the BBC. And um, and he asked me if I would go into the House of Lords, which was not what I was expecting. And I'm sure it's, you know, wasn't something that you were expecting to be asked to do when when it happened to you, Michael. But um, and unlike, you know, many people in the House of Lords, I'm not somebody who is a renowned expert in their field, particularly. But what I felt I had wanted to do um, going into uh, the Commons, but, you know, had not transpired, which was to you know, give a voice and promote understanding of the kind of people who I knew had, you know, become very let down by, um, uh, you know, sort of uh, so many people um, over the, you know, over the you know, preceding years and needed to be understood better. I felt I could do that in the House of Lords as well as I could in the House of Commons. And it was a great, you know, great honour and, you know, and I was delighted to accept it. You, you rose, of course, to becoming a member of the cabinet, to becoming leader of the House of Lords, meaning that you represent both your position in the cabinet as member of the government, but also the whole house. You also had the titles of Baroness in waiting to the Queen, you were a parliamentary undersecretary at the Department of Government and, uh, and Communities and Local Government. And you had the big task, the very big task, in steering the same-sex marriage bill through parliament. I mean, what was that experience like? Well, I mean, it was a it was a great thing to be part of. I mean, you know, I mean, to be part of legislation, which is, you know, hugely important to uh, society and, and brings about social change like that is not something that many people get the opportunity to do. So, um, you know, and I will always I will always look back on that as something which, you know, was um you know a, a, a great you know a great a great experience and a great honor to be a part of um for me i mean what i was concerned to ensure was that something so important did not become politicized and uh used to divide people and so that was one of the reasons why you know i, I volunteered to do it really because I, I i could see how something like that um you know could um you know could you know could, could could be quite damaging if not handled in the right way and and what was clear to me was that whilst there were proponents of the bill and they were um opponents of it you know who you know felt sort of equally as strongly there was a huge amount of people who were just very unsure and and i felt that you know being unsure and uncertain was a perfectly respectable 
um, a place for anybody to be on such a sort of, you know, such a big thing. I feel sort of quite confident in saying that the way in which, you know, we approached that legislation, which was quite different to the way in which it was dealt with in the House of Commons. I mean, I, you know, I, I, it had gone through the Commons by the time it reached us. And so I was able to sort of, you know, you know, observe that and, and learn from it. But, you know, I felt that, you know, the government had uh, addressed the um, perfectly legitimate concerns of religious bodies by protecting religious freedoms and, and, and religious faiths in the legislation. And that was important. And being able to sort of say to people who are uncertain that, you know, that protection was there for, uh, uh, religious groups so nobody was going to be forced into um, you know having to you know change their you know faith and also people could remain you know unsupportive of equal marriage it didn't you know it wasn't something you had to sort of you know support but um, by removing that uncertainty or re by removing sort of you know or, or dealing with the legitimate concerns that people uh, you know its opponents had and saying to to those who are unsure you're okay to be unsure. That's absolutely okay. But let me tell you why this is something which I think is a benefit to society as a whole. Yes, it will bring um, uh, great um, uh, equality to uh, gay people and they will benefit from it and they deserve to benefit from it. They deserve to be able to enjoy you know, the benefits of marriage uh, if they are going to honour it in the same way as straight couples do. But the importance of doing this is for everybody because it future-proofs this institution, which is so important to society. So doing all of that and presenting it in that way made it possible for people to um, uh, feel comfortable in listening, you know, and, and actually sort of, you know, being open to the arguments in favour. And um, so that's what we did. So we took all the politics out of it. Uh, and because, you know, it was, you know, it was a free vote for everybody. But, um, but what I did, you know, by, by sort of me being the, you know, the minister in charge and adopting that tone and approach, I, I sort of neutralized anybody who would try and use it in a way which was uh, political because, you know, it's like, well, you're going to have to get through me first and I'm in charge and this is how we're doing it. So, you know, and, and, um, and we won greater majorities in the House of Lords than they did in the Commons for this legislation. And, and I'm proud to say as well that, you know, I had a majority of Tories voting with me in every division too, which is not what happened in the Commons. And uh, and I actually had some people who not only were sort of, you know, maybe abstained on the first vote and then started with me, started voting with me as the legislation went through. There were some people who, um, you know, actually did change their minds in the course of that legislation. Um, and I think part of the way in which we approached it is also part of why equal marriage is something which has now been accepted. Um, to the extent that even the opponents of it would now not wish to see that legislation repealed if they were given the opportunity to do so. Um, so. You've been fascinating at the, the, the centre of so many seismic events, as you said, your time in Washington, that was the beginning of the Iraq war, Nelson Mandela was set free, this legislation, you're being in the House of Lords, your role uh, in, in the different functions you played, but this key legislation, which is so societally significant, 
And then last in the last 18 months, we've had the seismically significant impact of COVID and, of course, the killing of George Floyd, which caused there to be protests in the UK and all over the world. As you, as you look back on the Black Lives Matter movement and, and that particular moment of the killing of a man in public so prominently, what, what comes to your mind, what comes to your heart, how do you reflect on it? Well, I mean, I think the the killing of George Floyd, I mean, was, uh, you know, a terrible crime committed by the police officers uh, uh, concerned, or the, you know, the one police officer and the others, you know, involved. And I mean, it was shocking. Uh, and I think it was shocking because it wasn't just something which people heard about. It was also something that people could see because it was, you know, it had been videoed and, and these images were uh, circulated, you know, far and wide, and um, uh, you know, in a way that you know this sort of thing has never been sort of you know exposed and 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 shown really. And um, uh, and I think that you know the you know the outcry and the horror that it triggered amongst people, um, you know, was was understandable. Um, uh, I mean, I think that. You know, it's been, um, I, I think what is, I think I think the real challenge uh, in a way, and it's sort of similar to what I was just saying uh, before, is that, you know, something which, you know, the, the fact that it has um, triggered this, you know, discussion and debate about um, inequality and about, um, you know, how to, you know, and exposed and, and made it possible for people to, you know, raise awareness about uh, where there are, uh, injustices or uh, still there are sort of examples of discrimination that need to be tackled and that sort of thing and that's uh, a good thing I think what it's also um, uh, you know the, the real challenge is making that conversation possible and uh, and identifying the causes of these uh, inequalities or injustices so they can be tackled properly without this becoming a political issue and and I think you know we have to be live to the fact that there are always people who will seek to politicize this sort of thing and uh, and and rather than actually want to support the people who are um, uh, um, not uh, enjoying equal opportunity or are being discriminated against that um, that they that they don't you know use that as a way of furthering something else which is of no uh, help or assistance at all to the people who really need it and at the same time make you know sort of drum up uh, even more kind of division than there might have been before so this is a I think something where you know, we have to be aware of um, the bad forces at play, you know, when these things rightly get uh, exposed and are um, uh, prioritised as, as matters to be dealt with and, and properly addressed. So as the former chair of the Charity Commission, also, you've, you've been able to look at how another section of society outside of the media and, of course, politics delivers for ordinary people every single day. As you led the Charity Commission, did you become more impressed with the role of charities or were you more concerned about the abundant numbers of them and their administration? Well, I think, I mean, first of all, I mean, you know, charity delivers a huge amount of benefit to our society. I mean, it's, 
it's incredibly important. People care deeply about the charities that they support and the causes that they promote. And that's why there is so much enthusiasm and willingness of people to donate and get behind, um, you know, the work that is done in the name of charity. And, you know, when I say that, you know, I'm thinking about whether it's, you know, sort of big iconic names, you know, sort of through to uh, local charities in their you know, local communities. But, um, you know, we, we can never take anything sort of, you know, for granted. We can't take public support for uh, charities for granted. Um, you know, they, you know, they expect, people rightly expect anything which has that formal status of charity to really make a difference uh, in the name of uh, their cause and to go about doing it in a way which upholds those standards that people associate with the word charitable and they are sort of you know, all about what makes us good human beings really so um, the expectation and responsibilities of those running formal charities is large and uh, and there are occasions sadly when uh, charities have been found to let the side down because they haven't gone about their work in a way which um, meets those standards and uh, you know and that is that is a problem and uh, and I think as well in addition to that charities now that carry that formal status um, have to recognize in today's modern world they have to be accountable you know they have to be forever showing all the time that they understand that they are wearing that badge of registered charity you know as one of honor and you know and, and they must sort of um, uh, respect and do every, everything that they can to to promote that but you know I say all that about formalized charities and as the regulator that was what I was always you know pursuing and promoting all the time but don't ever let um being a registered charity be a barrier to being charitable because you know I also used to say to charities there are a lot of people out there who are doing charitable work and being fantastically charitable um, and doing so in their everyday lives that are not part of formalized charity so you don't have to be a charity to be charitable and I think that in today's world there's a need for you know all of us to show in the way that we play our part in our local communities that sort of you know respect for those sort of social norms and standards which sort of bring us together and form a sort of you know that glue that that strengthens our you know our societies and uh, and, and and communities so that's what i think about charity well, sadly, I think that's all we've got time for today. We could really talk forever. So many powerful, interesting themes. Thank you so much, Tina, Baroness Stahl. Thank you for joining me today and opening up your fascinating life and your remarkable relationships and your aspirations and all your achievements and the journey that you've been on through so many quarters that other people would long to follow your trail in. This episode will be with us for a very long time. So please join us next time on bbi's you're on mute where we hear from another icon a business leader famous personality until then please subscribe review leave your feedback wherever you get your podcast from if you're a leader who would like to share your journey and your opinion on social justice and a fairer society please contact us at podcast at flatbusinessinstitute.com until next time goodbye